back then and even now, uh, you get you get very um, atypical types are attracted to to that. It's a rough crew. Yeah, they're not the Earth Guardians. Let's just say that for sure. Um, and there was a there was a group back then. Uh, I'm pretty sure. Well, they were called uh, they were called the Kids, and they were from Minnesota mostly, and they did an underground kind of show. And this was um, this was normal for them, and this is not too abnormal for that era at Burning Man. I'm ready here. You say what? You get my stomach ready here. Yeah, so uh, probably, yeah, true. Um, take a little drama mean for a second. Great people. I really, uh, I don't know where they all are now. Occasionally I'll see one of them. Uh, lots of facial tattoos, lots of other markers of uh, being non-typical. But part of their show, which uh, I ended up seeing most of over time, because we lived together out at what was called the 80 Acres at the time, to stage for Burning Man. Um, there's one gal whose name I won't mention, but, uh, super nice, very heavy, uh, facial tattoos. Um, she did a fire from her pussy thing that I'd heard about and one night, uh, after the work day, which went, you know, until dark, they said, Hey, you know, she's going to do, uh, her deal right in our, in our commissary, which is small, you know, fit for 20, 30 people or 40 or something. Well, she was sitting down. I went and sat down across from her, five or six feet away. And she's looked at me and she said, Rody, you need to move back. <laughs> and I said, oh, right on. <laughs> and she blew probably a five or six foot flame out of her girl parts. <laughs> the other part of uh, what they did, one uh, one guy also named, uh, well, I don't even know if I ever got his actual name, but um a beer enema that he chugged afterwards that was a little hard <laughs> screwdriver up the urethra these were not this was burning man in the 2000s early 2000s well great people, great people but not the kind of people that you necessarily see in the on esplanade in 2023 <laughs> right no no i i've seen a lot of stuff in burning man but nothing Remotely like that. Welcome to the Furrowed Brow with Jeffrey Kipler. If you're enjoying the Furrowed Brow, please like, comment, and subscribe. And if you really like it, consider a donation through Patreon. I'm a one-man show. I really enjoy making this. All of the support is greatly appreciated. And you know, the more support I can get, more podcasts and time I, I can make and time I can carve out for this. So thanks a lot and hope you enjoy the episode. You got any questions for me before I start doing my thing? You got any mud left in any cracks, crevices, or <laughs> places? Well, on that note, uh, I'm going to start with my introduction because we're leaving that one in. This is why I uh, have Rody Jonas. I, I, I think he's probably the great-grandfather of the Jonas Brothers. Uh <laughs> I met Rody at Burning Man this year. He was staying next to me. He uh, was my favorite person that I met at the burn, a longtime burner of 25 plus years, if I remember correctly. Uh, a lot of people on the podcast, I, I know I've talked about Burning Man before. Uh, you probably don't all don't know how involved I am uh, and uh, 
So, but we're going to get into that a little bit today. Rody also uh, lives down in the Sonoma area of California. He runs a solar uh, installation and design company. Um, and yeah, let's just get into it, Rody. Uh, so did I get did I get any, all of that right? Is that was a approximately correct introduction of you? That was reasonably accurate, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you've been going to Burning Man like what? What was your first year? Uh, I believe it was '97. It was '96 or '7. The year it was on the Fly Ranch. I uh, I realized in in decades of retrospect that I don't identify years at Black Rock City well, what year it was or what the theme was. I have friends that have um, weirdly photographic <laughs> memories, uh, but I, you know, I have, the, you know, lots of crystal clear memories, just not of calendar dates and, and um, uh, you know, again, some certain specifics can get lost in the sands of time. I'm sure. Um, maybe lean in a little bit further because I think yeah. the sound isn't coming through quite oh, as well gotcha. as, you, as you lean back. Yeah, I I feel the same way actually. I've only been going since about 2015, but it it definitely becomes a blur uh even in that short amount of time. So that's hardly uh, that's hardly an only in this era. You know, there's some <laughs> people who uh fancy themselves, I would say, like old growth burners and it's their third or fourth year, right? They've seen a dust storm and so yeah. they're hard, right? So Speaking of dust storms, what was the worst dust storm that you've ever seen? Hmm. Huh. Well, uh, last year was possibly the worst dust week that I've uh, experienced in terms of duration, maybe not intensity. Really? Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Just in my, uh, you know, again, uh, occasionally hazy recollections. Um seen a lot of dust storms, uh, but have not seen that, um, I guess just a, kind of like, it just kept grinding away on people. And I think, and there's a great um, article by a person named Hammerdown, I think, or Buckdown, uh, about, he really breaks down the culture after COVID. Hey folks, we came back. We may not have been fully prepared because we kind of had a couple of years off. I mean, I went to Renegade Burn or Renegade Man. It was uh, utterly different. And I think a lot of people were unprepared to revisit the dust so immediately. Yeah. Uh, I remember a year, I would guess, was probably 2004. And it was blowing like that. And about Thursday, and back then, people showed up in hordes, Tuesday or Wednesday. And I don't mean week before. I mean week of, right? Like the city boomed, you know, days later than it does now. And I uh, was looking out towards uh, Exit Row Road, and there was lines of cars leaving because of the blowing dust. And I thought, you know, I, you know, right? It wasn't for you, right? It's good that yeah. you left because if you're not going to be happy here, then you shouldn't. Other places for you to be. I mean that that I, that's one of the things that I think makes Burning Man very interesting, and why I like the people there so much is because in some ways that the environment self selects for a certain type who are going to thrive in a particularly physically challenging environment, whether it be the dust storms or the rain or 
the heat or the bitterness of the cold of the night. So what, I mean, so a lot of people, every time like people ask, it's like, I've heard of Burning Man, but what is Burning Man? Like, is it a festival? Do they have music there? How do you answer that question? Well, they ask it, you know, if it's a festival or can't break that mentality, like you're, you're talking to them about what to expect. Uh, I think that, I mean, occasionally I have a gag reflex, right? Cause they still want to know where to buy a t-shirt or something. Um, I get, you know, in two ways over these uh, decades, one phrase I talk to people about, if you've heard of the parable of the three blind men and the elephant. So there's three blind men and an elephant. And one of them is holding the ear. One of them is, you know, on the side of the elephant and one is holding the tail. And uh, you ask the blind man, what's, what's an elephant? And one of them says, it's like paper, right? Thick papyrus. One of them says it's like the broad side of a barn. And one says it's like a rope. The elephant is all of those things. The Burning Man is all of those things and like a hell of a lot more. It's a kaleidoscope of humanity. And uh, the kind of corollary or addendum to that is that also I think what you will find is that some people will fixate on certain aspects of that, you know, rope, elephant or whatever it is. And whether it's festival or not, they'll talk to you about naked people or drugs or whatever. And what I've realized is that's because that's their thing, right? Mm -hmm. So that's what they're titillated by, whether they admit it or not. You know, we probably both heard after all this time, there's a lot of naked people there. Well, I mean, if that's your thing, you could probably find a few. And yeah, you know, some of them, it'd be nice if they put their clothes back on, but well, most um, of them, most of them, I know, right? It's, it's inversely correlated. <laughs> desire for them to have it back on. Yeah, you know, yeah. and someone asked about drugs. You mentioned that there's there's a law enforcement there, and they're shocked because they think it's this, you know, thing that it's not. It's all of those things, and it's many. It's it's also not many things that people think that it is because of their fixations or titillations. So what is it? So what is it for you that keeps bringing you back? Like, well, what what is your piece of the elephant that you keep grabbing onto? Mm. Well, again, with that you know, kaleidoscope of a myriad of things that Burning Man is, you know, there might be a, a, a dozen of those things. In some years, it may be more of a few of those dozen than uh, emphasis on a few than others. Uh, I realized when you were mentioning in the intro, you know, uh, you know, it was nice. We, we met, met each other and I think, you know, bonded pretty quickly. I realized after thinking about this after the fact that on almost any given year in Black Rock City, uh, serendipitously or not, I meet lots of people, but I never meet more than one or two yeah. in any year, but it's always one or two that I have a bond with and recognize. And that's one of those, re you know, one of those many and myriad reasons. I, uh, I love talking to those folks. I can tell you, uh, you're sitting there in our camp talking for hours to a um, gal from Lebanon. And mm. she was explaining that she had just come from a, uh, vacation with their friends and there were bombs going off in the distance that they could see and it was normal for them and here I am in Black Rock City having a conversation I'm probably not likely to run across her again or would even recognize her she wasn't one of those one or two special people that I recognize and bond with that it persists but she was certainly one of those people that you meet that you do not meet elsewhere and that's one of those things at Burning Man that's that's not the not discussed as much as the art, the fire, 
people they're naked or whatever. It's that you will you will meet humanity that's made it there and and a way higher proportion have a much more uh, tangible and intriguing aspect to them. And you connect in other ways uh, uh, in Black Rock City. Yeah, those are the things, some of the things that keep me going back. Yeah, I mean, you absolutely end up whether it's just rolling up to a big, I remember a couple of, a couple of guys that, you know, is with my wife and we went up to their bars and stuff and just started chit chatting. And like, I remember there was one, what was it? The poor decisions bar that was at the end of the street for us. It was like, there was some dude and he was like, like, he was like, Oh yeah, this is my first year. And he's like, he, it sounded like he'd been going to Bernie man for like a decade. I'm like, you, you got it right away. And you know, he just had, great conversations and he was a marketing guy advertising guy from la and um just how he was talking about how vapid everything here and one of the points that he made that i found very intriguing was that everything that they do with trying to create experiences and moments and things that touch people uh in his world you find an abundance of at burning man that authentic experience that like you know, you, you, you can't purchase or manufacture it, it, it's almost impossible, impossible to, um, it, it was, it, it was quite fascinating. And then he'd only been there for a couple of days and I was shocked that he got it that, that, that well, um, yeah. the, yeah, the, yeah, the other thing for me, that's quite interesting about Bernie man is the imposed scarcity. And like you, you, you end up with these bonds, people and, and many in many ways people end up bonding with each other uh throughout life through uh shared struggle um you know like you and i are both setting up camps and whatnot i'm coming over to your camp and i'm like i gotta get away from these people let's have a drink <laughs> and yeah, you know, and but when we're both setting it up in these very difficult conditions, and like you, you have that bond, and there's very little stuff, right? Like we don't have an unlimited amount of food and drink, and you know the the, the fact that you will somebody will just give something like you are very generous with all your you're like, hey, how, let's what were those orange espresso like sugar things and whatnot, um, and. You, in the real world, there's just uh, a ton of that stuff all the time. You can just go down to the store. Um, so you, you, you end up with the, these bonds that sort of occur because we've allowed ourselves to not have everything that we want all of the time. And I think uh, to, to add on to that, I think there's a scarcity of certain things and there's a plethora of others, right? And so one thing you don't see obviously as much of in Black Rock City is people uh, disengaged in their devices, right? Yeah. They're in the moment. And so while yeah. there's a scarcity of water or maybe dust-free air, there's a, there's definitely um, a scarcity of the types of distractions we have at home where you have a transaction. Like if you want to drink at home, you just pay that person, maybe say hi, maybe get their name, maybe not, and walk away. In Black Rock City, you didn't pay them for that drink. Yeah, I'm in the gifting era now. I do come from the barter era, so we might talk about the era of bartering <laughs> yeah, a little bit afterwards, more. Yeah, <laughs> there's some there's some people who might recollect their shaved eyebrow for getting a drink at our bar back in the early 2000s. 
So, uh, but yeah, you, you, you have that immediacy, uh, you know, as they say, and people that haven't should really go take a relook at the principles of Burning Man. It's not, it's not a cult where you gotta have to buy into all of those, but they're, they're an important part of the culture and they're relevant and, and they're meaningful. And if you, you know, you asked about what, uh, you know, what keeps me going back to Black Rock City. And I think it really, the reasons I go now, this, this is those principles. When I first went more on a whim and just because we heard of some shit blowing up in the desert, right? Back then, um, you know, very, a lot fewer people, obviously. Those reasons have changed. But those principles that were appealing, it wasn't something that someone needed to tell me that's what you ought to do. Those were things that I uh, already recognized as part of a, a good philosophy. Being yep. reliant, self-reliant. I live off grid. I have for longer than I've been going to Burning Man. Uh, th there's a number of things. Uh, this actually, this work shirt has a pocket. These pockets in our work shirts at this business are because, uh, in part, we have a, and I always have had a, don't let it hit the ground, as in leave no trace, and that mm. predated Burning Man. And so, you know, I think people, it, it's um, the way it was in Black Rock City back in the late 90s, obviously quite different now, different reasons to go back, but there's a commonality and thread throughout the decades that are reasons to continue to go. I mean, mm. I didn't start going in the, in the back then and keep going because of turnkey campers, right? That's changed in our city. At the same time- What's a turnkey camper? Pardon me? What's a turnkey camper? Well, it's all, you know, someone who, rather than radical self-reliance, one of those principles, that's not their thing. And so they pay uh, X amount of dollars to, you know, have someone prepare costumes for them and prepare their bike and prepare the place for them. And then they show up and hopefully have a good time. And for a while, that was off-putting for me. And I was, uh, one year I was talking, when this was early on in the Burning Man culture where, where turnkey camping was becoming a bigger thing. And uh, one of the things that Larry Harvey had said that he shared with a friend of mine named Coyote, uh, Tony, was that, remember, they're not going to change us, but we're more likely to change them. I, there were people that wanted to cast, you know, like make this exclusionary. And I was probably in that camp because it wasn't my thing. Yeah, That was a really uh, thoughtful approach. And, and for the folks that, that come for any of those turnkey reasons or otherwise, you know, if they're not a, as we call participant, let's just say if it's not their thing, if they're touristing, if they're more takers than part, than, than a part of it, that's fine too. But my phrase, which maybe is a little more callous than Larry Harvey, I'm certainly don't have a heart of gold that man had, but I would say, you know, we, uh, they come because of us and we still come in spite of them. And I don't mean all the turnkey campers. I just mean the types that show up and, you know, would never let you come to their camp, but want to spend time at yours. You know what I'm like? And th that, that to me is the key. It's like, you know, as, as you know, as you know, I help run a fancy camp and, you know, and there's, welcoming. yeah, well, we, we, we tried it and, we, we have a lot of nice stuff, but the thing is we, we try to make sure that we are giving back at a larger order of magnitude than 
we're doing more with the space and the things that were provided than we hope other camps would do who have our kind of uh, kind of resources um and that you're one part of the philosophy behind that and what you're talking about it and every camper has to do gifting they have to participate some do to a much greater degree than others trying so i'm trying to yeah you know you you, you have the slackers for sure um uh, uh, but at the corporate speak, it's meets expectations, right? Yeah. That's all they get in a review. Or meets are below, yes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, but in terms of what your your point that you said about we're more likely to change them than they are us, and that's a hundred percent true. We have so many campers who they just had they they checked something off of their bucket list that they, they thought they were going to get in they're they're coming to a camp that's going to make things pretty easy for them and then all of a sudden they're like this is amazing i want to be part of this and next year they're helping with art projects they're trying to organize things they're you know they they are changed by it and they didn't realize how enjoyable um the participation and the giving of it and and being part of the magic is until they got a flavor of it. And I, I, you know, and all, and the people who it's clear to me that the people who have the most fun are the people who are the ones building it. And, and now it's also the, the most suffering as well. But. <laughs> uh, Jeffrey, I often, I, I, I tell people around this business in life, uh, people don't climb mountains and run marathons because they're easy. They do it because it's rewarding, right? Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and there's a lot of that. But it doesn't have to be that for any person. And I'm not going to put my expectations on them. They, you know, you don't want to interfere with somebody else's experience. And if we start, if we start being uh, exclusionary for some kind of elitist view, within reason, there are people that really should leave. And not I don't want around. around. Yeah. Right. But, you know, uh, other than that, the opportunity to really – for them to have a positive impact on their life, possibly pay it forward. Uh, there's no higher higher likelihood place on the earth than Black Rock City to have that kind of experience like that. There's, there's other places people can go to have life-changing experiences, but they're not a higher likelihood of having life-changing. It's as high as yeah. anywhere for anybody. It's an awesome thing like that. Yeah, I, I, I've seen, I mean, it, you know, for me personally, um, I showed up in 2015. I really didn't know what to expect. I, I drank the Kool-Aid real hard though, real quick in terms of both in terms of Burning Man and what my camp was up to and the people there. And I'm like, I want to, I want to be part of this. But now one of the problems I had is I literally had no useful practical skills for Burning Man whatsoever. Right. No, no electrical, no mechanically inclined, no oh. nothing. Like I was, I wasn't even in, I was even in, 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 compared to now, poor physical shape where like I, I was not, I wasn't even strong. <laughs> and, and I was like, I realized kind of what a piece of shit I was in some ways. Like, and I was just like, holy crap, I have got to be able to, I want to be able to help. So, you know, I started showing up and doing stuff in the off season. And a lot of it was just lifting boxes. It was just moving things like Bernie man was the first thing to start getting me into physical shape. And like, now I'm pretty fucking strong um, for a 44 year old turning 45, like in two days, actually. You got a lot of years on me. <laughs> and 
Yeah, and, and and now I know the difference between a drill and a driver, and I can <laughs> big the hammer. Totally big right. Yeah, that's really impressive because uh, I would have never have guessed because uh, you know I watched you guys from across the way from my bar, watched you guys work. You're a great team. I actually wandered over a couple nights and watched you guys have your evening meeting because, like I said about the before you and I started talking here about the enterprise aspect the organizational yep. aspect of Burning Man. I just was uh, intrigued to see you guys operate as a team. Oh, it was, uh, you guys did a great job. You were okay. uh, really on point with um, also engaging your campers that clearly also didn't know, or at that time didn't know mechanical, get, giving them instruction on how to use tools and how to build things. It's pretty empowering for people who are pretty disempowered throughout a lot of their lives when they're, you know, Run around in the, you know, people call the default world, whatever the hell that means. Yeah. I mean, it, it, part of the journey for me was I had to actually prove that, it, and this was both to me and to the people running the place. I'm like, that I'm going to get my hands dirty, that I'm going to lift things. And eventually I worked my, as, as Rody is describing, I worked my way into management and, and, and running things, which I'm far better at than using a drill and a driver. There's people in camp who do that far, far better. And actually my my uh, my stepbrother Scott now is coming in camp because he's actually a, a carpenter. And I'm like, you're gonna replace me doing this stuff because you're a million times better at this stuff. So I can focus on other things. You might have a few campers come over and take the batteries out of your megaphone, just so you know, from oh, our, our side of the camp. Yeah. By the way, just, uh, what Rody is referring to is one of my duties is during build and strike. Build is a process where we we build camp leading up to the Burning Man and strike is we tear it down after Burning Man. And I wake up a lot earlier than pretty much everybody else in camp. And one of my duties is to go around and wake everybody up when it's time to work. So much so that I was so loud this year that I think I really pissed off Rody's camp. Or at least for the people in them. A few people might have just maybe gotten to bed when you were doing Reveille. And uh, I thought it was totally great because I was imagining you getting your campers up to work that maybe hadn't uh, planned on having to get to work in the morning. But I chuckled. It's really planned. Right? <laughs> you know, but sometimes they get us distracted during the evenings and decide to go out a little bit later than maybe was advisable. Exactly. Yeah, and it was actually revelry this year. It was bugle calls getting people up. So, yeah, well, people keep different hours out there in the desert, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's, uh, okay. So, yeah. one of the principles of Burning Man is gifting. Now, now you, just so everybody knows, you can't buy anything but ice on Playa. Uh, and it used to be you could buy coffee, but now it's just ice. Uh, and everything that you get, all of the entertainment, all of the food, all of the drink, it's all gifted, given away. In order to become a placed camp, you have to actually tell the org, this is what we're going to be giving uh, and using our space to provide for the playa. So it's a, it's a big deal, and it, it's, it is one of the major principles of Burning Man. It's one of the things I enjoy the most. Now, Rody remembers a day when it wasn't like this, and this is some of the first old-school stories where I realized I had to have Rody on. So, Rody, how did it used to work in Burning Man? Hmm. <laughs> So, so yeah, it was, it was bartering and it was one of the things that drew me to Burning Man. 
It really was. Uh, one of the main things uh, was it wasn't the barter itself. It was that everyone was expected to, to do their thing and not... Um, uh, let me offer an anecdote or a memory from that time. There's a, there's a festival here in Northern California called Reggae on the River. Some people might have heard of it. And I'd gone a number of times, had some friends involved with it. And you'd go there to that type of festival, right? What we were saying, festival. And, you know, people, I, I stopped up. I had a big giant cooler of beer and everything else. And you'd have people come up all the time and go, hey, can I have this and have that? Well, I was a working guy and I'd be like, eh, you know, no. <laughs> not that I was, it's just like, did you not plan? Did you not think? You know, I don't even know who the hell you are. Just, if I give a beer out to everybody, probably not going to have enough beer for us and the people who brought it for. Sounds rude. But then one of my neighbors at Reagan the River, he came over with a loaf of bread. And he said, hey, man, uh, I, I know you got some beer. Uh, I made this bread myself. Can I uh, offer you this bread and maybe get a beer? I said, damn, man, that's nice bread. You can have as much beer as you want. You don't have to ask me. Take any and all that you would like. Yeah. Because it's not, I wasn't monetizing it like, hey, I'll trade you uh, one beer for every four slices of homemade bread. It's just that in our world too often, you know, this is maybe why I'm an off-grid person and everything else. Many of these people is what I call disempowering a moment ago. They spend their normal part of their life where the world comes to them down a wire, through a pipe. It leaves in a hole in a sink or a toilet. It, you know, goes, it comes in a box and goes out in a bin. Like if they're devoid of like their, their participation in, in these, in these things. Right. And then when someone's made something or brought something or provided something, bartering demonetizes it. Again, it's not, two slices for, for a beer. It's just that, hey, I made some efforts. It's worth something and it's valuable. So at Burning Man in Black Rock City, people would come to our bar. Not a lot of people had bars back then. We had a full bar. We had a full pool table. People didn't have that kind of a bar with a pool light over. We had other activities. It was a pretty good sized camp in that era. Um, hard to imagine now. But And so people come up and say, hey, can I have a beer? We'd be like, uh, no, you can't have something. And they'd be a little dejected, but we'd offer them a way out. We'd say, hey, uh, what do you have? And they'd say, sometimes they'd say nothing. I'd say, come on, you have something. This is the empowering part. Tell us the story. Yeah. We had one of those, um, do you remember, You maybe your grandparents had those TVs that were the size of a small car? The big oh, yeah. cabinet, right, with the TV in it? So we took the TV out, because, you know, fuck the TV. Uh, and we put the, and hung the cabinet out with a little uh, curtain inside there. And so people would come to camp and ask for a drink. We'd be like, I, you know, tell us a joke or tell us a story. And they'd start to sometimes. And we'd say, no, 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 tell it on TV. And so then they'd go over behind the TV and then they'd pull the curtain open for the rest of camp. And they'd tell their joke or tell their story. And then they'd have a, they'd have a drink. And that was, you know, where people have something to offer. And when you tell people over and over again through however in our kind of commodified uh, culture that they're just a number or a dollar sign or a consumer and they don't really have anything to offer. Some people couldn't tell a story. Some people couldn't sing a song. We still gave them an out. Here's a broom. Sweep up a little bit. Yeah. Everyone's got something to give and it actually makes them, I think, uh, you know, it's more positive experience for them than, uh, than the other way around. Yeah. That's the yeah. bartering part. And that, that last part, I think, is, is very important even today with, like, some of our sh 
shittier campers sometimes it's like sometimes they just need to be told how to help they don't know how to get in there they don't need to you know uh uh they don't know how to act independently and if you say hey man i could really use your help with this and like that goes along goes a long way yeah we also had this is a little the grainier grittier part of uh black rock city era we had this wheel of pain and, and they would spin that we have a little bit more this is what i was looking for roadie <laughs> the wheel of pain that we have at our camp now is more wheel of discomfort uh you know it's more appropriate for this the wheel of comfort, roadie, yeah. I remember, so, it's the hag right the hag yes the one that I saw was like, I'm I'm sitting on the couch and the hag comes up to me. He's like, hey, Kibler, do you have any nose? Do you have any nose booger? You know, any boogers that I I'm like, oh, OK. And she wanted it because somebody got on the wheel to eat somebody's booger. And they now, did. They, <laughs> disgusted. <laughs> Discomfort. Discomfort. <laughs> so we had those kinds of things on our wheel of more discomfort, pain back in that era. But, you know, there was also uh, get cut. And there were people that gladly got cut. I think that actually was probably a very positive part of their experience. And what do you mean by get cut? What happened? And this was for like a beer? Yeah. <laughs> yeah pretty thirsty, right? And <laughs> where would they get cut? Like they would take a razor or something? Yeah, we let them choose. They'd lose eyebrows. They'd, they'd, uh, there was a, there was a swallow campers, uh, campmate spit. So, you know, and this, like, often they'd open their mouth and get spit down their throat. There was the, uh, um, shit. Oh, the, the dregs from the bottom of the keg server that had been there for days, you know what I mean? Practically moldy. They, to get a fresh beard, they had to go through the, the overflow to get there. And, and there was a few more, you know, reasonable things on there. Like, oh. I don't even remember because they weren't nearly as fun. But there was the shave eyebrow, which we had up until last year. And there were a lot of people that walked away with one or less eyebrows. <laughs> I I just remembered how I felt when I was hearing those stories at your bar. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I mean, you go back to then and around the corner from our camp up till about 2001 or two. There was, uh, people have heard of this, maybe. Not talk. Everyone talks about drive-by shooting range because that's like one of the big stories. And if you want to read about it from someone who was there and did it, read uh, Coyote, uh, Tony Perez's Built to Burn book. It's badass. He's the best storyteller by far. Uh, his near equal is probably Flash. But Built to Burn tells the story of Burning Man up to 98. Talk about old school. Um, but around the corner from our camp, which, you know, there weren't very many corners back then, but there was um, scaffolding up and people hanging by gaffle hooks through their skin and blood dripping down on the ground. You walk, you're going down to center camp to check things out, volunteer or whatever. And uh, they would, they had, you know, piercings through their back, the Indian piercing through the chest and they'd lift them up and they'd hang there for hours. And other people were on the ground doing the bodily piercing. So like I said, there's people who, that cut me, uh, on the wheel of pain, they were like Yahtzee, <laughs> <laughs> oh right? I, I, a, in like yeah. my early twenties, when I searched on the internet for weird shit, I might have seen things like that. But wow, yeah. guy, 
Yeah, when I uh, I worked with uh, DPW uh, for a few years there. Uh, and what, so everybody knows DPW is the Department of Public Works. They what do they do at Burning Man? They build the the infrastructure of the city and they support the art installations with heavy equipment and you know set up the roads. There's a uh, drill holes and and um, uh, heavy equipment and uh, just any variety of infrastructure. Uh, DPW is the hardcore people that do it. Yeah. Uh, and back then, and even now, uh, you get you get very um, atypical types are attracted to to that. It's a rough crew. Yeah, they're not the Earth Guardians. Let's just say that for sure. Um, and there was a there was a group back then. Uh, I'm pretty sure. Well, they were called uh, they were called the Kids, and they were from Minnesota mostly. And they did an underground kind of show. And this was um, this was normal for them. And this is not too abnormal for that era at Burning Man. I'm ready here. You say what? Let me get my stomach ready here. <laughs> yeah, so uh, probably, yeah, true. Um, take a little drama, I mean, for a second. Great people. I really, uh, I don't know where they all are now. Occasionally I'll see one of them. Uh, lots of facial tattoos, lots of other markers of uh, being non-typical. But part of their show, which uh, I ended up seeing most of over time, is we lived together out at what was called the 80 Acres at the time to stage for Burning Man. Um, there's one gal whose name I won't mention, but uh, super nice, very heavy uh, facial tattoos. Um, she did a fire from her pussy thing that I'd heard about. And one night uh, after the work day, which went you know until dark, they said, "Hey, you know she's gonna do uh, her deal, right?" In our in our commissary, which is small, you know, fit for 20, 30 people or 40 or something. Well, she was sitting down. I went and sat down across from her, five or six feet away. And she's looked at me and she said, Rody, you need to move back. <laughs> and I said, oh, right on. <laughs> and she blew probably a five or six foot flame out of her girl parts. <laughs> the other part of uh, what they did, one uh, one guy, also the name, I, well, I don't even know if I ever got his actual name, but um a beer enema that he chugged afterwards that was a little hard <laughs> screwdriver up the urethra these were not this was burning man in the 2000s early 2000s well, great, people. great people but not the kind of people that you necessarily see in the on esplanade in 2023 <laughs> right? no no i i've seen a lot of stuff at burning man but nothing Remotely like that. Um, are those guys still, those kind of guys still around? Can you find them? Or is that like a bygone era? Interesting. Uh, I saw one of the gentlemen, uh, God, he's a super nice guy too. Um, also in the interest of not anonymity, I won't mention his name, but yeah. two or three years ago, I hadn't seen him about 10, 12 years. I saw him on Esplanade, classic Burning Man thing. I'd been thinking about him like day before, he was a drummer for the, one of the heavy metal bands. Then I was like, ah, I wonder what happened to Blank, didn't say his name. Uh, I literally turned around and he was having a slice of pizza behind me. Hey man, big hug, nice to see you. So they're, they're around, I don't know how many are, you know, actually alive or unincarcerated, but um, <laughs> you know, 
I think that uh, one of these things that can be an instructive life, life experience at Black Rock City, we talked about meeting, you know, I met the girl from Lebanon, right? Yeah. Uh, there's folks who would never cross paths with folks like that or different folks. You know, yeah. they're normal. You know, we get in ruts in our life. We go to lunch with the similar same people or whatever we do. It's, it's really uh, healthy for people to realize that folks who look or act different, you know, we're supposed to be an open society and all LGBTQ, X plus and all that. But I think it's too easy to say and harder to do. And when people cross pollinate like they do at Black Rock City, it, it helps them uh, uh, connect and recognize the humanity in, in almost everybody. Yeah, and I've thought, I think about this now that I have a daughter, and I, I think, and I want to bring her to Burning Man, and I think to myself, it's like, well, there's a lot of negative influences at Burning Man. It's not all, you know, <laughs> uh, kittens and puppies, right? Like, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of people with a lot of bad habits <laughs> and making some very bad decisions at Burning Man. Um, and it's, it's, it's part of the thing. And I'm like, why would... I want to bring my kids there. It's like part part of the reason is because of just all of the skills that you can learn the 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 really the, the the canvas through which you can be inspired to do so many different things and find interests in so many different uh, avenues of you know creation that you know I don't think I would have otherwise been exposed to. Um, but but another part of it really is that you you are going to get exposed to people, good and bad, um, that you would not otherwise be be able to come around. And, and too many people, I feel like, live these sterile lives where they are essentially in a bubble um, and don't have a chance to um, be on the more the the outskirts of what is acceptable civilization in many words, and and Bernie Man is you know it's it's not I it's not what it was twenty years ago, but it is still there's a there's a tangent that runs against a, a particular world that uh, most people don't come close to experiencing. And you know, and I'll say this is part of a lot of these conversations that some people would lament that there's not the fire breathing vagina uh, show happening. And, you know, maybe I wouldn't mind saying that again, but, uh, but uh, I don't lament this change because with the growth of Burning Man, yeah, some things are uh, long gone and, and partially forgotten, uh, but you're, the giant art is not happening when there's 4,000 people there. Right. The giant art. And for, you know, now say a city of 70,000 people, the opportunities, the potential opportunity for many of those 70,000 people to have, you know, life, very meaningful life experiences that they might not have had in their normal day to day. It's not happening when there's four or 5,000 people. That was fun. I remember the first time we saw a motorized anything. It was a lazy boy. It blew my mind. A lazy boy went by with someone. I want one. Fuck that. I want five. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So this, was, this was also an era when I took my tractor up there to cruise around on, um, and quads and shit like that. But when you, you know, we would have, we wouldn't have the lazy boys turned into pirate ships with 50 people on them. Yeah. Nine uh, fire. That shit's cool. And we have to have that amount kind of a mass and momentum to have bigger art happen, to have bigger experiences happen, to have more opportunities for more people. 
there's always room to wish that this or that was different or that this or that thing didn't change, but it's inevitable. You know, at, at one point somebody was wearing diapers and then they're not for a long time, right? Things change with people and things change with uh, a community and a culture like Burning Man. It's stayed pretty true in its core uh, to many of those principles. They don't notice anything in the kind of core principles of Burning Man that said that you have to have kind of crazy ass, nearly aberrant shit going on. It's not mm -hmm. a requirement to be radically self-reliant to blow fire out of your orbit, <laughs> right? <laughs> Man, there was this, uh, so back then too, like you said about people volunteering uh, and so back then I was, I was already a solar person. That's what I did. I'd done all kinds of different trades, but I, I welcomed the opportunity for me to do things that I didn't and wasn't going to do at home. I show up at Burning Man and I see these guys unload these kind of tracked robots and they're blowing fire. And obviously I'm pretty smitten and know that I'm going to come back every year until, right? And I just go up and talk to them. Hey, what are you guys doing? Can I give you a hand? Yeah. That night, I'm operating a flamethrower, right? <laughs> you know, that's not going to happen in the neighborhoods. No. And, uh, and I was helping these guys. There was this German band called the Aesthetic Meat Foundation. And this is something that's not going to happen in this era. Kind of like a few of those other things. So they're a heavy metal German band. So think German, then heavy metal, right? Getting, they're, they're multiplicative. And part of the show in their yard was rotting meat carcasses at Black Rock City in the heat for the week. But I thought they were funny, so I, cool. And so I, interesting. So I helped them out. They didn't have tools to do their own shit. So I had, you know, I had skill saws and stuff like that and helped them build their set. And then they'd put out their, you know, carcasses, literally meat carcasses in the sun. Cause I don't think the health department now that's cruising around is all that keen on like flies and maggots on Thursday. Right. And then they'd play their heavy metal with all this like rotting meat around them. Uh, and said, and they did this fire show, you know, now the fire restrictions, like you tell people, they have no idea that yeah. you want to fire in your camp. You got to fill out a 20 page questionnaire. They're going to inspect your regulators and shit. Well, they just dump gas on the ground, like not ground, but around there and lit it on fire. So Kibler, one night we're standing there watching the show, right? We're standing next to the lead guy's girlfriend. And, uh, damn, what was his name? Kinch? It was a very German name. And he's there dancing around with his meat, practically licking it or whatever he's doing. Then he pours all the gas on the ground. He's going to light it, and he can't get it lit. And he finally lights it, but it's vaporized at that point. And the fireball blows him back on his ass. Like, it's a big fireball in his face. Oh, so it's just all in the air at that point. Yeah, blows him back on his ass. I can still hear her uh, clearly. She just kind of she goes very German. She just tisks him. Heinz, poor Heinz. You know he's <laughs> patting, patting the fire out on his leather regalia or whatever it is. Rotten meat, unregulated flame. Uh, they've gone by the wayside. But you can't have seventy thousand people with rotten meat and unregulated flame. Because in part, back to you bring, wanting to bring your daughter, he took our twins when they were three, four, and five. Yeah. And people, and people said, how can you take them to Black Rock City? I don't think I would have taken them to see people hanging from gaffle hooks with blood right. running out. A little too yeah. much. That's not happening now. But what I tell people is uh, 
there is not a safer city on this planet with 70,000 people in it. Yeah. They might see something a little like a bad choice going on, make good choices, uh, rings a little hollow on the playa. Um, but I, one thing I knew is that there was nothing unsafe. You don't see fights. There are no weapons. I have yet to see a physical yeah. altercation. In t- I know they've happened to Black Rock City. I know they happened. We had Rangers, you know, camping with us. But you have you ever seen anybody have a no, altercation? No, I never. I mean, the, the the closest I came to being in a physical altercation, we had some guy like pissed in our camp and was like mouthing off to the leader, and. I, I thought there was going to be a fight, and I was very close to tackling the guy, but nothing ever happened. He just, you know, walked off, and it, it was fine. You know, I never. I did jujitsu with a guy, you know, in the, in the streets during the mud, uh, with all the mud, but that was mutual. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. Mud? What, what is this? Yeah. A little bit of mud here. A little... You, on the other hand, yeah, Rody famously... <laughs> Like, I, I, I'm like going to look for my neighbors this year, and this is towards you. This was like Friday, and like these guys are getting packed up. You're what is your camp? Twenty five people or so. It was around there this year, right around there, and, and I'm like, what the hell's going on? He's like, well, they're they're the fine, fine roadies. Like, well, there's well, there's dust storms, and we got all this stuff tangled. You know, they're putting all of their stuff away, and we hear there's some weather coming in. And we're leaving. I'm like, okay, great, great. Not, not an hour later, two hours later, the rain hits, <laughs> and it was, it was like nothing I'd ever seen before. I, it was. I've seen rain on the playa. I can tell you that that amount of rain has never happened in the history of Miami ever. It was, it, it, it was unbelievable. <laughs> so it was, uh, yeah. It was uh, both serendipity, which is uh, common, right, on the playa. I think we all know that. But uh, happenstance as well, I've never left that early, not once in a couple yeah. of decades. But uh, we were on, we were heading out. We were driving on basically Gate Road, and I was telling the little travel trailer that we have, and my truck was getting sideways on flat ground already from the rain, and they were closing yep. the road when we passed to pavement. If we would have been 15 minutes later, we would have stayed with you, and we, you and I, you know, we would have had a very different conversation. It'd be like, room. (laughs) (laughs) We put everything away. (laughs) Yeah, and it, it, uh, you know, we we had no idea how close the timing was. Um, It would have had the camp broke down and then be stuck in. Oh, bar open, bring it on, right? We're good. But camp broke down. What are you gonna do? Sit there and watch? I mean, yeah. I, I mean, there were there were people coming to us. I remember I had one guy who was looking for wood uh, because he needed to put his tent up because it had flooded that that, that evening, and like his you know his spot was completely flooded out, and they needed you know basically small stilts to a platform to put it up up on. It was uh, it was very very rough for a lot of people it was uh, very difficult <laughs> yeah there's a uh, there's a quite varied experiences i mean i think we had a low trailer count in our camp this year compared to some years mm-hmm. uh, and uh a lot of tent campers much more unpleasant for tent campers tents uh, were it was probably my 20th burn before i camped in a tent actually 
uh, and Black Rock City. Uh, from the very first time we went up there, I had this old uh, 79 Shasta motorhome, and it was never nice, and it never got nicer. Weird thing. After going to Black Rock City, every when it came back every time, it didn't get nicer over the years. No. And so, you know, at one point we decided, I'm not sure, and it caught fire on the way one time to Black Rock City. Uh, you know, uh, blew a tire. I mean, that, that Shasta saw it all on and off the playa. It still has a sticker on it. I still have it, by the way, shamefully, but it has a sticker. If anybody happens to catch this that's been there that long, uh, Bianca's Smut Shack was a camp for years. I bet that, I bet I haven't seen them in almost 18 years. It has a sticker on it from Bianca's Smut Shack. That's like a very uh, telltale old school piece of regalia right there. So what were your favorite camps this year that you encountered? Hmm. Hmm. So there's a, there's a, that's an interesting question. Uh, this is the elephant thing a little bit. So in order for people that may not be familiar uh, or have had different experiences, like there's favorite people and then there's favorite camps. Yeah. You might even find a cool ass camp check it out for a while and then decide that there's just a bunch of dickheads there. Right. Or contrary, you might stumble in at like four in the morning. Uh, Cause you see someone having a bowl of ramen and you want to say hi. And it yep. might be like one of your favorite camp, but they have a half a tent left after a windstorm and that's it. So, so the, there's different metrics for favorite camp. Uh, we loved you guys as neighbors. Um, uh, a couple of your campers got yelled at by a couple of my campers for like riding through like right by their private areas. But you know, that shit happens. Um, <laughs> and then shout out to Dan Hunter for using our neighbor's uh, private porta potty. Thanks, Dan. Welcome to Hawaii, Dan. <laughs> My wife gave him a ripple. So we have a, you talked about Bad Decisions Camp. That was down there by Shotsky, I think. And they're one of our favorite camps because we've known them for 10, 12 years. And we go back and forth uh, to their camp. And they're just great people. We hang out, we ride around together. I think, you know, that kind of rapport is, is awesome. And that kind of like long longevity, uh, that makes it hard to, to not, you know, reference Shotsky camp and give them a shout out for yep. they are. And friends to us, um, you know, the camps where people put, I'm not into sound camps, so I can't even comment on that. They're just yeah. like, like cringe and cover one ear and I go by, but you know, the camp that had like the belay where there people were jumping like 70 foot off and they had little kids doing it, where they had the ski hill. You know, those people were put a I huge about effort into sharing an excellent attribute. Uh, one of our campers, Molly and I, went to the top of your guys' uh, hammocks. Having it next door, pretty cool. Yeah. Um, you know, awesome feature uh, anywhere on the playa and even better when it's next door. I don't know what camps did you see that were really struck you and as memorable. There were two that really, th well, actually, I'll say three that really stuck out to me. One was the Brodega. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know if you saw this one, but these guys set up. Apparently, they were a bunch of actors, but they set up a bodega uh, that had like it, it. They were doing sort of like barter and blackjack 
and yeah, yeah. And they were, you know, they're, they're basically doing all the dude games and stuff. And they had like a, a convenience shop where you could, you would trade things within the convenience shop, uh, you know, stuff like toothpaste, band-aids, you know, whatever, like, uh, but the, the real, the, the, the real feature was that they had this door kind of in the back of the convenience store with a guard on it. And the guard was like, you want to look in? And he would crack the door. And in there, there was cockfighting. And when I say cockfighting, it was like a giant inflatable cock and like penis and like fighting a giant inflatable watermelon. And there were people like betting on the match in the back. <laughs> and they did this like every night. And it it was their commitment to the act was just next level because they were all playing the part well that was there was a karaoke camp that was i think it was like non-consensual karaoke where instead of you going and choosing your song they told you what song you were gonna sing um which i thought was just an absolutely amazing concept um, and I did, I was like, they, they chose me. I don't even remember what damn song they had. I was terrible at it, but I'm like, this is too funny for me to say, no, I can't like, whatever. I'm going to butcher it. It's not my fault. <laughs> They're going to take uh, one look at the person like you and decide which song is going to be least well-fitting and possibly <laughs> least hard to engage with. So I'm guessing, I don't know, Dolly Parton. Is that what you were? I, I asked my wife. I, I don't remember it offhand. But I was basically reading the words. I couldn't even like figure out what the tune was supposed to be. And the last camp, which was like actually right in, right around both of us, um, they they weren't even a placed camp, but they did the I think it was like the unreasonably low bar where they had um, they set out this like pop up tent. And just everybody there was awesome. We we're we we're actually we're my wife and I are still are friends with them and are and like a chat with them um, now, but they, they, they went to deep, deep play, like next to the trash fence and they set up a pop-up tent, but it was only like, a, you couldn't like stand up under it. Like you had to sort of crouch and sit and they had a very small bar and they had like, uh, like whiskey, they had whiskey and some whatever uh, they, they were serving and the whiskey was labeled things like not Jack Daniels. And they would take like the maker's mark and pour it into the Jack Daniels. And then the maker's mark would be like not maker. And they would have this label on it, not maker's mark. And it would be something else in that bottle. Um, and they, they were out there for apparently like 48 hours straight doing this uh, in deep playa. Uh, so for those of you who don't, who don't know, Burning Man is this giant circle and between like, you know, the, the top part between two and 10 is out in playa and you get, if you go as far as you can go, basically it becomes deep playa with the trash fence. And it's very far away from anything civilized. you never know what you're going to find out there. And these guys were running a bar under a very, very short pop-up tent for a long period of time. Um, and yeah, I, I I, I thought this is a really relative term in this discussion, right? What's I'm sorry, what's that? You use the word far from anything civilized. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's civilized. It's civilized. Like, <laughs> totally relative. <laughs> you know, 
Uh, so yeah, th- those were my favorite camps that I encountered this year. Like they, I just thought they very interesting, well executed themes and 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 whatnot. Like so, and I I'm also with you on the sound camps. Like a ton of my friends love all the douche 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 douche. Oh, we're gonna go see Diplo. Uh, I I. I whatever <laughs> you know they they uh we've had campers well actually campers kids that have came and you know they go out to the sound camp all night come back at, at dawn yeah and then they miss most of the camp day because they sleep till seven or eight in the afternoon and then yeah. then they have a bite to eat then they go back you know if that's what they want to do kind of like i said earlier i had to adapt Take, took me a while after a little revulsion you know i decide to you know i say you know accept it as just their deal you know, yeah, during that transition period from from a much smaller Burning Man, I mean, it happened. The growth happened pretty quickly. I don't know what years that someone's got to count what the population went by and where you started to see more, you know, plug and play and turnkey more. Yeah. You know, there were and, and you know, I know you had you know you had you had a variety of different campers at your camp. Mm-hmm. The kind of camp I'm descri- describe is very different from you guys, yeah. and. Um, at that time, this is when these million-dollar motorhomes would show up. And we hadn't yeah. seen this before. And and they would literally, this is the part about they come because of us. We come in spite of them. They would circle up these million-dollar motorhomes. And yeah. they would park them so that a human couldn't get through. Yeah. And then they would leave one opening for people to go in and out of. And many of them would post a guard. Yeah. So if you're like, hey, what's going on in here? Somebody would be yeah. like, hey, you don't belong. And there's yeah. no, you don't belong in Black Rock City. And so that was a moment like, you know, of really having to adapt, right? To yeah. like, you know, that's their deal. Uh, I don't know where to put that. I, you know, that yeah, was- there's, and the, the problem is like, one, every camp should have, in my opinion, a public area, at least a, a welcoming space where, you know, you're, at a minimum, you're you know you don't have to give them anything necessarily, but like you just you know you're 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 not completely closed off. I mean, two, if you're you've got all these million dollar motorhomes, you should be in that public space providing some sort of gift for everybody on Playa, and and you know that a lot of these a, a lot of these camps, and I know I I, I mean I I know these camps exist where they're charging. 10, 20 plus thousand dollars for some of these setups. Um, and then on, on top of that, like, so they have management and essentially that is not, you know, and they have sh- what they call Sherpas, yeah. um, where people who are just there to work, they're not really there to burn or to go, you know, out and enjoy the playa at, at all. It's a job for them. Um, and on top of that, the people who are coming aren't actually gifting whatsoever, and in that, that's not, that's not right. It's it, it's it, especially when you're a placed camp. <laughs> so, so in, yeah, uh, so it's so unilateral, and it's so it's. I, I guess what I had to also accept is it's mostly unfortunate for them. They got an opportunity, oh, yeah. to maybe get away from their other dickhead friends, and maybe have some real bona fide quality experiences rather than fragging each other with what cool ass thing that they bought with their cool ass money. So they have this opportunity to meet people and instead they, they kind of don't cause they go touristing around 
They don't really have those quality experiences. You know, they, they get to see the art like everybody else, but talk about being takers and not, a, yeah. not, not it's gifting or bartering or whatever. It is participating. It's being a part of the community. And, you know, maybe yeah. they're the same people that live in, not, live in nothing but gated communities. During that transition time, this is what I was kind of getting to earlier, I thought, and some of us were thinking again around when Larry Harvey said, don't, you know, they're not going to change us. We're more likely to change them. Some of them aren't going to change. They're like incorrigible like that. Yeah. I had to realize, uh, and fortunately so, and one night in particular wasn't really instructive for me because I was pretty jaded, getting kind of jaded. And one of our campers that we still camp with named Lauren, he is the epitome of the um, the best camper met more and recognized him if you saw him he and i ended up going out can't tell you what kind of state of mind we might have been in when uh, in the you know what i called the suburbs at the time just cruising around like you talk about camp no not place camps and yeah. we cruised for hours and we would just i'm going to tell you just skid up at a camp you know again where someone's just like eating top ramen under a light and we'd just like sit yeah. down in a lawn chair shoot the shit grab a beer, give them a beer, you know, whatever it was. And that went on for hours. And what I realized that night and the next day, I'm like, you know, you can dilute something, but usually dilution means kind of like thoroughly mixed up and diluted. That's not what happens when you get your, your other folks that maybe aren't, aren't harmonious, I'll say, at Black Rock City. It turns out the beating heart of Burning Man is still there. You might have to look for it a little harder. But it's not watered down. It's just a little harder to find. You might have to go around a big enclave of um, prima donnas with their giant ass motorhomes um, and spend all day in their air conditioning, right? And that's fine. But people shouldn't forget that there are other things there. You might have to look for them a little bit more. Maybe you got to go out to deep playa and find, find the inconveniently low bar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, I. And to go back to like, when did that stuff, the motorhome start happening? I, I think this is actually the, the, the first year, it either it was either 2002 or 2016, because it was either the first or second year I came, um, when the tickets sold out. And then all of a sudden the tickets started becoming scarce commodities so that the, the value of them went up. So then the value of the placed camp went up. And that's when they start to run out of because you get the guaranteed tickets from being a placed camp. So they ended up with a lot more people who said, oh, yeah, I'm going to do all this stuff. Wink, wink. No, they didn't do all this stuff. They're just taking the whatever couple dozen tickets that they're assigned for however many campers that they're bringing in. And then they're marking them up and charging them a huge amount of money. And you ended up having these problems. So now you so now there's a lot the burning man. And I think the org does a pretty good job of it. Um, is that they they really pay attention, especially to like the larger camps. Are what are you bringing to the table, right? Are are you deserve this space because space itself at Burning Man for place camps is the most valuable commodity. It's tickets and space. Yeah, agreed. Well, and now parking passes, right, can be a scarce or scarcer than tickets, which was an interesting wrinkle in that. And just so that people also understand this, and I think the way it might have sounded like, hey, we have 100 people in our camp, so we'll get 100 tickets. Place camps, as you know, don't get that. You, you yeah. describe your camp. You say, you know, we have 60 people, for example, and we need 20 to build it. And they might yeah. come back and say, after looking up your skirt, if that's what you were implying, yeah. uh, or kilt, whatever it is, uh, they might say, hey, we'll give you 12. 
yeah. based on your camp size and the, the bulk of the camp. So they've gotten very good at, they were very good. And it's kind of like probably Google um, algorithms in that there's like kind of a cat and mouse game of continuing to garner those tickets in, in ways by skewing their applications and things. The yeah. org is, the org is committed to ensuring equal access and they're very careful, probably too, they do so many things so well, they do some things, um, but they're very committed to ensuring that equal access, limiting that lack of experience called turnkey camper, but yep. without, you know, becoming authoritarian, they do have tendencies towards that for sure. But Always you know, do. They have, power, can have power trips in various divisions there, but um, again, they're serious about it. They've done a lot. There's only so much they can do before they start to overreach. And I'd rather have a few tards. I used to call them cash tards, right? They just show up with some cash, whatever it is. Bring, and and Coyote used to say, bring more than your money. Fine to bring your money and your fancy motor, but bring more than that, right? And um, and so I, I would rather err on the side of having a few of them there than having, you know, overreach in a, some kind of ben, non-benevolent, malevolent dictatorship, right? Uh, uh, yeah, for, for sure. I, I, would, I would rather them almost err on the side of letting people do, letting people take advantage of it a little too much than being too authoritarian um, because they're going to end up squashing the, the magic if they become too prescriptive, you know, um, just a, a comment about like the people that bring more than your, your pocketbook. It's like, you know, there's a lot of people at Birdie Man who give a lot of shit to, you know, the, the rich people who showed up. But then at some point, you've got to realize, look around you, who's paying for all this? It's it's not me. I will tell you that, um, you know, and so I, I appreciate that the people who have the money, but, you know, they run a company or whatever. They don't have the time to dedicate it, but they let somebody like myself um, do that kind of work. I appreciate it. Like, I, I think it's in many ways, those art cars are, are not built by rich people, but they're certainly funded by them <laughs> for the most part. Um, so I, I, it's, would, I would agree. It's like I said, it's not only the headcount, the momentum, and, and there's a place for that. Last year, if you'd asked about some favorite things from last, you asked about camps this year, but I don't know if you saw the Why Not Saloon last year. Um, mm. It it was really, really, it's one of those incredibly well done, incredibly well funded. Hey, look, one of my campers just walked in. Now that we're back from our small break, how about this one question for you? This is kind of a, a thematic uh, question that I ask a lot of my guests. Um, what has been your biggest shift in philosophy in either the past few years or you know, past 10 years, whatever, whatever comes to mind. And we're talking kind of uh, Burning Man centric versus just yeah, if, if you want or whatever floats your boat. Well, I, I, I think they're, you know, you're doing something as part of your life, a pretty, fairly large part of your life. I'm not one of those burners that like is 24 seven burner, quite obviously, you know, some yeah. people are too, like, you know, maybe a little, can't ever stop talking about that kind of thing. Like, My wife gives me some shit about that from time to time. We got a text from Lauren's wife that said, hey, the only thing worse than getting stuck in the mud at Burning Man is getting stuck talking to somebody about Burning Man. <laughs> <laughs> funny as hell. But you can't go I, 
How do you know somebody's gone to Burning Man? Don't worry. They'll tell you. For sure. It, it does come up. I would say that there's a, there is a kind of um, a, a coincident, a coincident thing where I, when I first started going, you know, late nineties, I don't think I was a classically full blown anarchist, but I was fairly close still in terms of, you know, again, I'm, I'm an operator. I don't like, being around civilization and people. I like making my own stuff. Yep. And there was a point in time when I figured I'd make all my own stuff. I didn't want to be beholden to anybody for anything. You realize there's like over time as you kind of like get used to having your, had your balls drop that, that it's a collaborative effort. There's yep. this essay written in like 1958 by this, uh, it's Leonard something called I comma pencil. It's an essay called I pencil. And it goes through how a pencil is made. And no one person can make something as simple as a pencil. It's like a two-page essay. It's really a great read because it reminds you that nobody did it by their own bootstraps. They can't even make their own fucking bootstraps. And so at the time when I was transitioning in life and you know, out of college for a few years and all that and, and going to Burning Man, it, you know, it's a collaborative effort. That artist didn't make the flamethrower, the, the valve itself. An engineer did and a factory. And so people uh, say to me, you know, oh, you're, you live off grid, you're totally self-sufficient. I laugh. I'm like, don't have a loom. Don't make my own shirts. Yeah, I make my own electricity. Like big deal, you know? Some people are all about hunting. They're like, oh shit, you buy food at a store? How dare you? I'm like, really? You make your own shirt? Quit picking your, you know, right. pick your poison kind of thing. How about those bullets? Did you, did you forge those yourselves? Did you make the gunpowder? <laughs> yeah. Trebuchet with uh, Ron Animal uh, from, from Aesthetic Meat Camp. So, so the, the change, I think, the most dramatic change for me was accepting that collaborative effort and kind of lack of, uh, you know, for better phrase, you know, wanting to be blindly self and unable, you know, self-sufficient. Yeah. You go to work then, and yeah, you work together and you make some cool shit and you do some cool things. And, and that's better than trying to make your own fork and, yeah. and so over these, you know, and I, and I started with a very small business of just me putting in solar arrays and then it became a team and, you know, you got to eat some shit sandwiches along the way and do some things. I mean, everyone thinks compromise is a dirty word, but without it, what you've compromised is a pretty uh, uh, breadth of experience. And so yeah. that change for me, accepting at Burning Man was I didn't even like the organization growing up. One of the reasons I stopped doing DPW, one, um, was that they suddenly went to paperwork. I showed up one year to work DPW, and I had a form to fill out. And I laughed. And I said, I don't fill out forms. <laughs> <laughs> and, but I realized over the next few years, even though I had kind of, I still worked with, I did the power system, the off-grid power systems for Burning Man Org out at their, at the at Black Rock Station, their work ranch. And it was still close. I wired the man one year. I still did that stuff. I didn't collaborate as closely and I realized and accepted the inevitable, the part of that growing up that brought the larger art and the more people meant changes and they formalized. It was, as we know, a pretty wild West out there. And if they hadn't changed, you and I would not be talking right now. Yeah. Because it was, the event would have never survived the way it was going. Yeah. I mean, and they have deep pockets at this point, right? Like as, once you get to a certain size and the skirt at a certain scale, you open yourself up to risk and liability. And I mean, I've heard that they have like some of the best lawyers in the world uh, who 
you know, in, they are indemnified as far as, uh, you know, the, the world, the, the law goes. But at the same time, like, your, your attack surface is too large. Camper in the house. Hello, Ralph, the creator. Can I catch up with you when I get out? I'll send you a message to catch up with you guys. I have 10 pounds of chicken liver to clean and 10 <laughs> bunches of herbs to pick and stuff. What are you laughing at? This is Kibler. He's our neighbor this year. Kibler? Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah, it's a pretty good setup you got. Oh, it's a little too, it's a little too clear. I'm trying to make, figure out how to make it fuzzy. So Ralph is a renowned uh, chef. Oh, okay. Um, he's also the one that made from Bear Steel that circle swing at our camp. Oh, wow. That circle swing is awesome. Just so everybody knows what Rody is talking about. He's, their camp has this swing that is this large circle. I, what is it, about eight, six to eight feet in diameter? Oh, it's probably more like 12 foot in diameter. We've had about eight feet diameter. Long. Yeah. And it swings op- over a gas uh, a, a fire pit, uh, may- maybe like a foot, is that about a foot and a half, two feet or so in diameter? A two foot diameter, uh, glass bead, propane fire pit. Yeah, and it's kind of funny because you're, you're warming yourself while you're, you're, you're on the swing, but you're also swinging towards the fire in some ways. It's, it's a respectable... It's a small but respectable fire, but it's a def- definitely a sight to behold when you're you're checking out their camp from the front. Natty dreads not recommended because they're yeah, 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 no, right? <laughs> yeah uh, uh, frilly skirts uh, really an issue. Uh huh. We're pretty careful. We, we're pretty careful with it, but yeah, it's one of those things that you just said risk and liability. You know, yeah, Black Rock City is not the place you want to be if Nerf World is your ideal. There's some sharp yeah. edges. Right. And and you can't take them all out. And uh, it's not town with curbs and ballers and warning signs at work. They do a yeah. lot better now. Uh, I don't know if the word better is right. It's kind of like that relative term about civilization. But you can't have people fumbling in the middle of the night. I used to joke about having a um, tetanus camp next to us when all the thousands of people started showing up before I adapted. And I was like, you know, I'm just going to build a rusty metal shell of a camp next to us. And I'm going to have one well-lit sign that says free beer in the front. So when they run in the dark, everyone gets tetanus. That was my, you know, little cruel streak I had going on there. But you kind of can't do that because lots of people would run in there and get tetanus. <laughs> it's fun to think about. I thought about it a lot. <laughs> Some people more than others. So, yeah. You know, going back to the the you know the the not being an anarchist anymore, it reminded me. I'm, I'm forgetting which uh, who, who said this, but it reminds me of a, a quote that I'll paraphrase: that uh, a man who can live in isolation is either a god or a beast. So yeah, um, I moved off grid um, about ninety four. And I moved pretty fairly remote, actually not as remote as I live right now, but fairly remote. And what I realized, these back to the landers from the hippie era lived out there where I lived. And Mm -hmm. the ones that had been there for decades, similar to what you're saying, no one remained unchanged. They went one of two directions. They were either fucking weird, blown out weird, or they were incredibly well-grounded. That's a little take, a little more subtle than... God or beast, 
but people, if they were had been out there living in the kind of living off grid, living by candlelight, living out of their Volkswagen for decades, more or less, they were either one or the other. They were gone, nearly gone, hard to relate to, or they were incredibly grounded people because mm-hmm. relatively isolation is going to do that to people, or, you know, they're either tethered or they're not. And I, and I, there's nothing I think equivalent at, at Black Rock City other than I think you and I know that without the fetters and the, <laughs> hey, it's time to go to bed, people, the bars closed at two. I mean, I know they don't close. Uh, so people go there and can veer off course and have a difficult time because they don't have the regulation in place that they have and they don't, um, they don't have those bounds. And, you know, I wouldn't say it happens to a high proportion of people. We've seen it happen in our camp. We had someone leave 5150 a few years ago. One of our campers' sons didn't know how to regulate his behavior. He went out crazy. I mean, like, he's fine now, but when you were talking to him, he lost his grip on reality yeah. because he didn't know how to regulate. <laughs> Let me share. Can I share a story with you? Yeah, that's what you're here for, Artie. Yeah, another one. This is just like a digressed story, but about folks that get out there without the norms. One of our visiting campers, so new camper, uh, one of our longer year campers named Ian. Again, this is early 2000s, early to mid 2000s. So uh, Ian had been camping with us with five or six years. We've known each other since we were kids. You know, a friend of a friend brought, I mean, a friend of ours brought this other friend. I think his name was Steve. And Steve brought his drums and he was playing drums at camp. That was fucking cool, right? So uh, day three or four, uh, Steve says, hey, Ian, can I borrow your bike? Steve takes off. I don't know, we didn't see him for like 48 hours. Like three quarters of our camp uh, sitting out, you know, like in the afternoon on a really hot afternoon. Um, Steve rolls up. He doesn't have a stitch of clothing with him. He's bumping up, but he's lost all his clothing. Hold on. It's a hot day in Black Rock City. He's on Ian's bike, sitting on Ian's bike seat. And I, you know, hardly missing the beat. Look at Ian and go, oh, dude, sorry. <laughs> I'm like... <laughs> what are you doing with that sweaty ass crack on your bike seat, man? You know, Steve, we don't know where Steve's clothes went. I'm not sure if Steve knew, That's but right. right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, things can happen. They they can happen. <laughs> they're a man, they're a god or a beast. He was in isolation. Well, he wasn't in isolation, but he was isolated from other norms that he might have needed, like maybe nudity laws or something. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've definitely had, I would say in my, since 2015, only, only one evening where I really got off the rails. I will not go in details of that uh, <laughs> evening on camera, but let's just say I had a little too much to drink. Uh, <laughs> well, that easily happens when the drinks are free, right? And they go on and they're anywhere. Like, oh yeah. There's always something to drink with. Um yeah, yeah, uh, it's uh, but yeah, for me though, like now, I'm in bed by two in the morning most nights. Like, I, I, if I, I have no desire whatsoever to see sunrise, like at all. I don't understand the people who do that a lot, and I know people who who will go out for 24, 48 hours sometimes. And I'm like, this is this is not comfortable. I've, I've done it before, 24 hours, not 48. That's absurd. Um, but like, no, I, I like my afternoons at the burn. I like, you know, 
the evenings like the the idea that i'm going to like ruin my entire next day because i wanted to see the sunrise and stay up for it like forget that i usually like to see if if possible i don't plan for it but maybe one at least one sunrise on the playa it's kind of it's kind of nice if you have a certain type of night and not blottoed or hammered because you don't again it gets hot in the afternoon you don't need to be in your domicile whatever it is with a wicked hangover when it's 108 degrees out, like that sucks ass. Awful. So, right? But it, some of those sunrises are pretty special. Although I think a lot of people that are up at sunrise probably don't have a great recollection of sunrise. So they missed it anyways, right? And I yes. think, you know, I had a couple, obviously, more of the early years were like that. Later nights, a lot less sleep. And yeah, I get to sleep at what would be called a plier reasonable hour now, two, three in the morning. Yeah, yeah, sleep. two. That's great. <laughs> it's all relative, right? You know, I'm up. I'm up by noon, and I got eight hours of sleep. It's fantastic. Somebody's hitting your bullhorn from you. Well, yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> during the week. That doesn't happen. <laughs> during build, it doesn't happen. Oh man. Um. So. Any particularly interesting art installations did you see this year? Anything really get your goat? You talk about an embarrassment of riches. To describe to people who can't get unfixated off, you know, the nudity or drugs or whatever it is, to really tell them like that they'll see world class, mind blowing art, and so much of it that they'll have a hard time remembering some stuff that blew their mind in the moment, right? Yeah. Um, I usually, and often it'll be something that just kind of, uh, I'm going to use kind of a pretty non-super macho. I get the, there's a, something that'll be delightful. There were these two robots about 15 feet tall. I don't know if you saw them or not. Mm-hmm. One was a metal robot. One was wood robot. And the metal robot had an ax in his hand. They're like 15 feet tall. And they're really well done. And the wooden robot had a wrench. They were th- and they were threatening each other with a finger pointed. And you know that's tribal. It was I just uh, they just finished building it. It was really fun to see. It was you know you talked about the the inconveniently low bar uh, out there and uh, and art like this that I'm talking about. What happens with the art and with I mean that's performance art the the low bar that you're talking about and yep. this is with art art installations. There are Again, an embarrassment of riches of Genesis moments. I'm not a very creative person. I can build shit. I do yep. great power systems. I'm not an artist. You see stuff out there that blows your mind and creates uh, 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 new thoughts, new ideas. And just, you know, again, like you get delighted by uh, surprising pieces of art like that, where uh, the classically makes you think and somebody gifted it to you. And you'll hear people whether they're griping about the dust or the camper they didn't like or whatever the hell it is, one of the things they'll gripe about is the cost of Burning Man. And, and it is, it's expensive. It's, yeah. I mean, you can go there and volunteer. You lots of opportunities to volunteer and go there on the cheap, for sure. Be a ranger. Fuck you, ranger, yep. whatever it is. But when people talk about the cost, and I point out, you can't go to a uh, campground for a week for less than a Burning Man ticket, really, if you want to camp at like a Nico West or something. And you yep. sure don't have two trillion dollars worth uh, in the mind's eye of art there. You yep. see, uh, so the, the robots to answer your question were one of them. 
Uh, I like climbable stuff. I climbed and then felt, felt like it was going to be a disaster. Those lit up cubes at night, the water cubes. I don't know. Oh, if yeah, yeah. You know, oh, oh, for the audience, just so you know, I got to the top of this, like, uh, unseemingly tall, certainly dangerous, possibly life-threatening art installation that we rode up to on bikes. And I just climbed it to the top, and it was moving. And I was like, man, this thing might fall over. I turned around, and, hey, there were two people having sex. <laughs> There weren't that many people around, and you know what? Most people were just not really paying attention to them because their the the view out on the playa was so good. It, it does happen out there. It's not a big deal, and uh, I you know. Uh, and don't let the rangers see you, or at least the police. <laughs> get a condom on, for God's sakes! Are you people from the Aesthetic Meat Foundation? Oh yeah, um, yeah. For me, the temple in particular, I thought was absolutely gorgeous. Um, the the CNC cuts. I'm not sure if you got to see the detail of that, but it was absolutely phenomenal. And um, you know, while I'm sure you're very glad that you got off uh, uh, Playa, the, the the burn of the temple was was just phenomenal with uh, the design of it. It was just gorgeous. And I'll try to remember to link to the video that's out there of that. But it, it was something else, um, you know. And it was uh, another note about this particular burn is I think it was the first year that the, the man or the temple was delayed. The burning was delayed at all. Never happened before. You got Never, to see yeah. You're not the three or four burner that saw the mud year, the late burn. The one for the burn of the temple and the man that year. Totally. <laughs> you, you just reminded me with the temple. Um, I, I'm going to share a couple quick old uh, Burning Man, uh, that things are important to share for the legacy. Because uh, there, in, in the temple, there was a memoriam for one of uh, the mm, most uh, uh, unique and singular people that I've met at Burning Man uh, uh, over all these years, a uh, handful. And Carl Brucker, known as Cowboy Carl, was in charge of the fence. And I remember you telling me about him at the burn, yeah. Yeah, he's one of a kind, and I consider him a friend, and we'd spent a fair amount of time together. And uh, uh, there's a great article that Tony Coyote wrote, uh, I should say article, memorial to him uh, that talks a bit about his life. Uh, you will not find a more singular individual uh, than Carl Brucker. Things he did in his life. Um, he was in the military, right? Oh, yeah, he was a Marine. He signed up for Vietnam when he was 17. He had a midlife crisis in his 40s, went back, did boot camp, and went back through another tour of duty with the Marines. When I knew him early on, he moved out to Texas because he thought he was going to be a Catholic priest. That was an interesting moment. Uh, he was a cowboy from the high desert, old, as old school cowboy as you can get. I'd drive up to 447 with him from like, you know, Wadsworth up to Gerlach, and he'd tell these stories of spending winters up in the mountains. You know, people have driven up the Burning Man and just focus on the road, never looked at those mountains or thought about it. He would tell stories of this creek and this cabin and the way that this, you know, ramshackle place looked where he wintered, you know, with the cows. And, and um, so and he, would, he would winter in the mountains around Black Rock Desert. Yeah. And I don't know that they went through the heart, like the middle of winter, I don't think. But when there was snow around, sometimes when it was 110, like all weather cowboy. You know, I lived on horseback 
and you know, he'd been a cowboy up there for 30 years uh, before Burning Man, you know, came around and he, you know, started working with them. And back in the early days with DPW, when he was one of the managers, he'd have his morning meeting and all the managers would speak. And then Cowboy Carl would speak and say some things that would have people talk about cowboy wisdom. Um, the things that came out of that man's mouth were priceless. You drive down the What's that? Do you remember an example of what he would say? Oh, yeah. Um, and, you know, which is a tiny drop uh, uh, in a torrent, a uh, tiny raindrop in a, in a maelstrom of the things that came out. You drive down Gate Road over the years, you'd see signs and quotes where you chuckle and laugh. Most of those were Cowboy Carl. And, you know, he would say, uh, well, uh, like I'll share, the last time that I spoke with him, I actually, in retrospect, realized that he wasn't feeling well finally. We're talking about one of the toughest men alive, right? And he said, when we were talking, he said, uh, ah, damn, I used to be able to fight off a bear with a bent nail. <laughs> Casually came out of his mouth. You know, the moment I chuckled later, I was like, well, I was telling me I'd be harder now with a bent nail to fight off a bear. And that he couldn't, uh, later in the conversation, he said, I probably couldn't scratch my ass with a wildcat in each hand. <laughs> what? You gotta think about it. Well, wild, oh, right, claws, and they're going wild. Got them back there, that's great. He used to say drier than a popcorn fart to talk about the fire. And then you think to yourself, like, what is a popcorn fart? Why is it so dry, Carl? Right? I guess. You must know. He's got a lot of country wisdom. Maybe some, you know. So uh, Carl Brucker uh, had a big picture, and I uh, went to think about him at the temple um, this year. So. Yeah. Also, John Boy uh, was in there. He was the one of the head electricians and a, and a multi-generational electrician out of Fernley, Wadsworth, and Gerlach. Uh, John Boy passed in the last year as well. Um, two legends at, at Burning Man, both of those men. Great loss um, and uh, a privilege to have known both of them. Um, I worked with John Boy a number of times on off-grid power systems up there in Gerlach, as well as wired the man base with him one year. Utter, utter professional. Uh, mm. a hallmark of the person so yeah and just so everybody knows the, the the temple at birdie man is sort of uh a sacred it, it is a sacred spot it's uh, a lot of people go to the temple and they leave memorials pictures poems artwork um that relate to oftentimes people who have passed away um people who have left their lives for whatever reason and they're looking to honor and memorialize um, them. Um, and, you know, almost all of Burning Man is a party, ex except for when you're at the temple. It's it's solemn. It's quiet. Um, and when the temple burns, it's uh, it's there, there's no loud music. There's no music. There's just there's for the most part just people sitting around and paying their respects while uh, while the temple burns. Yeah, it's a very, it's a very, um, it's, it's an important part of the culture and people do yeah. go there to help their, their part of their grieving process. Um, and there's a lot of profound, uh, things there and I never go there lightly. <laughs> no. It's a, it's an incredibly, um, intimate experience. Um, yeah. And a surprise I, to some people, right? Yeah, I mean, not infrequently, there's somebody who is playing uh, taps on the bugle while you're there. 
or uh, there, I've, I've been there with like uh, bagpipes and I've certainly been moved to tears there. It's, um, it's a, it's a very special place uh, every year, and it's uh, and in many and in many ways for for me the the burn it is it, such an ephemeral thing, where you're putting a huge amount of effort into a week. Uh, it's just a week, and everything is built from nothing, and then it goes back to nothing when you're done. Um, and the, the the temple in many ways represents that a part of that cycle where um every where that where everything goes away yeah a little biblical there ashes to ashes and dust to dust but yes very very much so very very much so yeah well well <laughs> like where do we bring it after that um Rody, i am actually out of questions for you sir awesome Wow, that's uh, great. <laughs> that was worn down to a nub. No, I think it's it's you just said you said earlier that you know if you wonder if someone's going has gone to Burning Man, don't worry, they'll tell you. Yeah. Uh, it, it can get tiresome and it we talk about it uh, a lot. And um, I don't I wouldn't I've had so many friends over the years. I know I go, obviously, right? And then they say this, uh, I always wanted to go. And I'm going to tell you and I'm telling anybody that happens to watch this, it's not for everybody. Maybe you shouldn't go. But if you don't know, don't wait five goddamn years to find out that you wished you'd gone five years earlier. You just wasted five good years. Go, go once. Don't overthink it. Go in a tent, sleep in your car. Go for two days. You don't got to go. You don't have to go for nine days. You don't have to be an artist. Not to do any of that. Go solo. Yep. Go go. However, and if you like it, go back. And if you don't, tell tell Kibler and I to keep it to ourselves and go about your business. But <laughs> and we, we have taken friends that you know it is the seventh year since they said they want to go and they finally go, and, and then they go every year and you're like, man, that would have been a good seven years we'd have had in Black Rock City. Because when I'm there, I'm there. I've always been there and I'll always be there. When I'm not there, I'm not there. And and. And so those seven years in Black Rock City with those people that are, you know, new friends and old friends, uh, they're pretty hard to beat, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, my my best friends are all burners at this point, for the most part, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and I think a lot of that comes from the shared struggle. It's like the the most difficult things that I do are part of Burning Man. Like the, the the biggest things that I, aside from you know family stuff, um, the the most challenging, rewarding things that I, I take on have to do with the burn, and the people that I do it with are the people I be I've become closest to. Yeah, I mean, with, you know, with those shared interests, you're going to find that somebody who is totally unsuitable for you for all these years you've gone back and and your heart's in it. If they're a totally unsuitable person for Black Rock City, you're probably not going to be drawn. It's not you have to share Burning Man. It's just that type of person. If it's the totally wrong place for them, people like us are probably unlikely to search them out over and over again in our day-to-day -day life because they're just we're too dissimilar. And again, it's not Burning Man. It's just similarities in, in function. And like yeah. I said, when I first went, I recognized it's not like I had to be indoctrinated or buy into something. I'm just like, oh, shit, these people are like me. 
like yeah. to burn shit, build shit, and blow shit up, and be you know like yeah. that. That was that was more recognition than it was adoption. Yeah, I mean, you you don't mind being uncomfortable. Like you 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 find that exhilarating in some ways. Like that that was one of the things that I think surprised I surprised myself with was that like the the revelry and the lack of comfort in many ways, like when the difficult times, when it gets difficult, when it gets too hot, when there's work that still needs to be done, you know, and, and pushing on through that, um, like it's, and the people who I do that with, it's like, those are, those are my people. (laughs) If you, if you don't show up to that, it's like, okay, that's cool. But you know, don't need you. In general, a lot of people, unfortunately for them, are going to miss out on a lot of things in life because they're so averse to anything uncomfortable. They won't climb mountains. They won't, won't run marathons. They probably won't actually go camping unless somebody put up a tent for them. Uh, and I, you know, they'll miss out on the easiest things are rarely the best. Things. Yeah. Well, I exclude exception from that, but. Yeah, the, the 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 thing the things that are most challenging in life are always the most rewarding, for sure. Raising your daughter, brother. <laughs> so far, that hasn't been too hard. I think oh, I've got well, easier, easier years before the challenge. She still loves me, so <laughs> she likes seeing me every morning. It's great. Wow! wow. You know? In 12 years, I'm not sure that's going to be the case anymore. <laughs> 14 years old or 15 years old instead of 15 months, you'll notice a market change. <laughs> uh, well, um, I'm actually good too uh, because I've had all, I've had people from the field calling me. I don't know if you know my phone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's, Rody. This has been a pleasure, man. This is uh, I, I've really enjoyed having you on the podcast. I'm so glad that we made this happen. And I'm even more importantly, I'm glad, I'm glad we're still in touch and we'll, we'll chat and um, maybe you'll we can. Email, you'll email me, not text, right? <laughs> yes, I'll email you. Right, I keep texting you. I've got, I got, Rody doesn't do the, the high tech communication method of texting very well. He's more of an email guy. <laughs> yeah, I'm terrible. I'm uniquely terrible at texting. I'm, I'm decent at uh, the email, but I will respond to multiple texts eventually. Um, yeah, and thanks for having, having me on and, uh, and uh, sharing this time. And uh, I'm glad we're still in touch. You were that, that one or, you know, one to two max people that I happened to um, stumble across in a given year. So I appreciate you being that person. Hey, th- thank you for being you that person in my life as well, Brody. Take care, man. Appreciate you. First podcast, I don't know how to log out. Oh, leave. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha